This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me. My name is John Dunn. Today is December the 15th. So glad you're here this week as we revisit some of the best bits of the Best Friends podcast for this year. Yes, 2022 is almost over, which I know will be welcome news to many, maybe all of us. It's been a difficult year. But we've also had some great things happen, and I hope you and your teams are able to celebrate the good this holiday season because that's so important. You know, for me, one of my highlights of the year has to be the return of the Best Friends National Conference to in-person. I met so many of you podcast listeners at the conference, which was amazing. It's great to meet you. We also had some unbelievably successful adoption events for our partners, more than 25,000 adoptions between the events held in July August and September. That doesn't even count the adoptions that happened during the most recent event that just happened uh, this past weekend. We'll be able to share the results of that one very soon. So we've done a best of episode the last couple of years, so you know how it works, but basically I've just pieced together a few little clips from the full episodes. By no means are they the only good bits from that episode, so if you hear something you want to hear more about, check out the full episode. You can see all of them by going to bestfriends.org slash podcast. And of course, we've had many more episodes this year than we could fit into just this best of episode. And every episode from the year can be found again at bestfriends.org slash podcast. Links in the show notes on your podcast player. To get us started, we're going back to February. One of my favorite episodes of the year, episode number 100, our guest was Julie Castle, the CEO of Best Friends. She and I sat down to catch up and talk about a then-recent decision she and the leadership of Best Friends made to increase the pay for the animal caregiving staff. I had a huge change of heart around this, and it started happening probably in about 20... It it was chipping away through the the 2010s, right? And I think I hit probably 2017 and went, uh, ended up managing uh, in the very beginning our our response to Harvey. And there, it wasn't what I actually wanted to do. It just sort of happened that way because of a lot of different events. And so I spent a lot of time on the ground there and just spent a lot of time with our, our caregiving staff, which I'd done often, but I had, I had an opportunity to actually work shoulder to shoulder with them. And that kind of started this ball rolling for me, thinking about the importance of that job, that people who, who are taking care of the animals, it, it was like this light bulb moment, like, this is our highest charge. Our highest charge is that we take care of animals and animals are our priority. And if we as an organization or a movement are paying these folks less than anybody else in the organization, there is something really wrong with our priorities, really wrong. And so as we were going through our, our budgeting for this year and we had started in on a compensation reboot, a compensation study for levels all across the organization. And when I, when I started to see where those were landing, I said, the one I am most interested in right now is our animal caregivers at our sanctuary and our life-saving centers. 
that one I really want to get my hands dirty on. So I rolled up my sleeves with the staff that were performing the compensation review. And, and I was curious to see where they would come in with what their recommendation was. And it was generous. But I thought, you know what? <laughs> we need to be really generous. Really generous because the animals in our care, this is what we do. It's not the only thing we do, but we are an animal welfare organization. And the folks who are, are charged with taking care of those sentient beings are very important. And so we, we sat down and talked through this. And I just said, look, I feel like our entry level wage needs to be $50,000. Well, Julie, when you say 50K, I just want to make sure everyone knows that you're using that as sort of a catch-all number, if you will. It's not the exact amount. It's not a flat rate for all. It's going to be lower at the entry level uh, and then higher than that at the top end, depending on location, You know, whether you're the sanctuary in Utah or LA or New York. So, uh, Oh, and plus benefits. So the sanctuary, for example, I do know caregivers will hit that number once they reach a year of employment. Uh, you've got a blog coming out in the next few days. It's going to go into more detail. So we'll make sure we have that linked on uh, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Yeah, I, I think it. I think the way the world's headed, inflation, the economy, you've got companies that are, you know, really looking at, at wages. You've got communities and cities having the starting wage be $15 an hour, which in my opinion is a long time coming. And at the end of the day, I said to myself, you know, if you have the means to do this, any company in the world, if you have the means to pay your employees well, you should do it. Because if you don't have well-paid employees, you don't have a company. Your, your employees, your people, your folks, your humans are what makes your organization work. It is the most important thing that you can take care of. And if you take care of that, everything else becomes way easier, way, way, way easier. And that took me a, a long time to get to that point, just mentally and philosophically, I think, because you're, you're trained, you're, you, you grow up in this is how it's always been, this is how it always should be. And I think we all are fall victim to that in some way or another. And I certainly was part of that. And I think there was part of part of me had a bit of a chip on my shoulder, like, look, I put in my time and you should too. And it was totally the wrong attitude. And so I, I will wholeheartedly admit that, recognize how short-sighted and immature that was. And just to think about this more holistically and taking care of a person and thinking about it in those terms and, and knowing that your staff doesn't have to worry about paying bills is a big deal. And hearing stories from people all across the organization saying things like, oh, now I don't have to live with a roommate. And I say, how old are you? And they're in their mid thirties and living with a roommate. And now I can buy a house. Now I can dot, dot, dot. And it just makes me really happy. Caring for animals is a real skill and it is very, very hard work, which I'm not sure how many people realize that. But as you say, you know, it is seen as entry level, but there are so many aspects of those jobs 
that are not at all entry level, working with the public, knowing how to care for animals and work with the public and be good at both of those things. I mean, that's not something anyone can do and just be successful. So anyone who wants to do it and is good at it, why can't that be the career? You know, not that there shouldn't be opportunities to move up, but we've denigrated that job so much, I think, you know, and what it takes. I mean, they're all real skills as valid as knowing how to write fundraising appeals or, I mean, I don't know, host a podcast, I guess. I I totally agree. And I think there are a few things when we were going through this that, that I had, that I took real issue with. The fact that we just sort of had gotten into this routine of calling people frontline staff that we're caring for animals. No, no more. That goes out the window. We're not going to use that term anymore. This is the heart of our mission staff. Let's use that uh, or figure out something akin to that. To me, that was a really important deal in all of this. And the other thing is thinking about the amount of skill and energy it takes to go from expressing an incontinent cat one minute and then dealing with a very high maintenance volunteer the next minute. And you all know what I'm talking about. And then you have a donor that comes in and you have to put on your happy face, even though you could have had a totally shit day. Like there are a lot of components to this. And I, I think about this, about our entire movement, somebody who's working in a shelter, these young women who came out from Michigan with that dog, Bella, And that story was really incredibly heart-wrenching. And we connected with the shelter. They drove this dog all the way across the country. They arrived at Dogtown, and I met them at Dogtown. And this dog had been left chained up in the backyard. There was a domestic dispute. One at the partner left a, a bag of dog food just out of reach of this dog to punish her partner. And one of these young women found the dog. She got a phone call. Animal control officer couldn't have been more than 25 years old. And um, Bella had chewed her leg off. And so she immediately called the vet, got the dog to the vet, this sweet pit bull dog. And let the dog recover, hooked up with us. We took Bella. And later I I went to dinner with them that evening. And it was a fascinating conversation to understand what they were facing. I asked them, you know, how long have you been at your shelter? How big is your community? First of all, 185,000 people, decent sized community, not huge. You know, how long have you been there? Five years. What were you getting paid? When you started $8 an hour, do you have a staffing shortage? Yes, we do, because we can't afford to pay people as much as the local Taco Bell. And it's the same story that I'm hearing over and over again. And I think until we as an industry, as a field, as a movement recognize that we are going to be in a perpetual staffing shortage and shelter crisis, and this is never going to be a career for people, if we don't start really paying our employees, particularly caregivers, what they're worth. And I just feel like it is such an important issue for our entire movement, like one that I'm super passionate about. And you just think about really like 
sorry, how hard these guys work. And it's, um, <clears throat> it is a humbling experience and it's why you get so many, or at least best friends get so many people who come to visit the sanctuary or they volunteer at one of our life-saving centers and they absolutely fall in love with these caregivers because they see them doing the work that's at the heart of our mission. And they see the love and the care that they have for these animals to the point where they will sacrifice themselves personally for that job. And I'm not saying that's healthy or right. I'm just saying this is the DNA of the people that we're attracting. And in some ways, you think about these folks who are going to do this, no matter the personal sacrifice. And so I'm saying to other leadership across the nation, we need to help these folks have a livable wage beyond a livable wage. Like, forget about that. Like, let's reward them in the same way that they are rewarding the animals in their care. Next up is episode 104. Are you a risk taker? This one was a conversation with McKenna Yarborough and Stacy Rogers, both of whom are part of the regional team here at Best Friends. They work with our network partners and communities across the country. You know, taking risks, it isn't easy. If for no other reason than our work involves living beings, people, and pets. We're not just stacking boxes or making widgets, right? The decisions we make in our jobs can profoundly impact lives. So it's natural and wise to be cautious, but being overly so can also impact the number of lives you're able to save. So these two risk-taking lifesavers shared some ideas, not only as to how you can be riskier in your work, but how you can be a smart risk-taker. If you're deciding not to change because you're afraid to, then I think it's time to evaluate that fear. Like, why are you afraid not to, to do it? What are the risks? What are the true risks? Is it something that's going to really hurt your organization? I think more times than not, it won't. I think more times than not, to take a look at a policy change or to risk altering the vision or mission for your organization, you can try it. If you're truly that afraid, make a small change. See how it goes. Try it and track it is one of the phrases I've often said many million times to shelter leaders. Just try it and track, see, see if your fears come true. Did you start a managed intake program and all of a sudden you started having more stray intake or did you started to see more animals abandoned at your shelter? Then making that change, your fears came true. But if you made the change and there was no increase of strays, there was no increase of animals being neglected or abandoned and pick a time frame, say six months, let's try it and track it. If you change your adoption policies, try it for three months and track to see how many returns you got. So I guess what I would say is there's always a way to make change and to do so comfortably rather than jumping off the cliff with the bungee jump. Like you don't have to jump off a cliff. You can just do it slowly. You can repel slowly down the cliff. Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk to shelters, we encourage them, start a pilot program, especially if you're a municipal shelter and you might not have the ability to change something permanently. See if you can convince them to do a pilot and track all of your data. If you're a rescue group and you're really fearful of changing your adoption policies because, you know, you're comfortable and they can all get placed and you know they're in homes and they're in fosters. And so you're happy placing 500 dogs a year if you 
take that risk and you eliminate home checks and you eliminate some of the things that are taking you time. Can you place a thousand dogs a year and you're helping more dogs and cats get into homes in the end? You know, just try it for a little bit. See, did anything catastrophic happen when you stopped calling landlords to see if pets were allowed in that building? Because in most cases, nothing catastrophic is going to happen in large scale. We talk to groups about open adoptions and they're like, oh, but, you know, returns are going to go went up so much when we started lowering our adoption barriers. You know, look at those returns as a percentage of how many animals you placed into homes. And they're probably the same or lower than they were before. It just seems like more because you're helping so many more as they go through. So it's, you know, just measuring that, looking at the data, seeing if that risk really did come with a reward or a challenge with it and trying to be risky and doing it quickly. Don't take two years to come up with the new plan for how you're going to reevaluate your programs. Get an idea, come back from a conference, be excited and take that risk and see if you can pilot one new thing for the next three months. This next episode is a special one for me because I was able to be there in person. You know, we started this podcast during COVID, so this was my first ever opportunity for a podcast interview taping on location. And of course, the topic itself is incredibly important and one that I care a lot about. Tens of millions of American pet owners live in rural areas, some in places that are not only rural, but they're also vast, mostly empty spaces. Think about the middle of the country or out west. Even in the best of times, a veterinarian could easily be over an hour's drive away. Of course, a lot of these areas also tend to be economically depressed. The services are less likely to be in the places they're needed the most. Cole Wakefield has really helped to elevate the conversation around rural life-saving issues over the last couple of years. He's the executive director of Good Shepherd Humane Society in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Again, I was so lucky to be able to visit the facility during a trip to the area and sit down with Cole in person as he tried to help me understand the situation their organization and so many others like them face saving lives in rural America. Yeah, those are going to be the last mile to no kill. I mean, if, if we're going to save them all, we're going to have to save the ones out here in the sticks. Right. And the challenge is that so much of our effort as an industry has been on the big number locations, you know, let's save 10,000 animals in Los Angeles or, you know, wherever it is. And, And those are very important things. And that's a lot of lives to save. But when we've developed so much of our infrastructure and so much of our models in those areas, you know, those don't translate one-to-one. And I think it's, and I don't think it's the ideas. I think the ideas translate. I mean, I think the services model of animal welfare translate. I think a lot of what comes out of those translate, but the actual functional side of it has to be adjusted and new models have to be developed for areas that like we see in most of Arkansas or Montana or, you know, all over the country. One of the things that I thought was real important to do here when I took over was to to get out from behind the desk and out from our gates at the shelter and to get out to the community. And some of that is, you know, like our food support program, um, our showing up at events, being there to help people just, just, and, and being there to listen and not walking into community going, I'm taking all the dogs off chains because all of you dummy rednecks have your dogs on chains. Well, I, you know, you can say that and you may even feel that in your heart, but if you're trying to keep that from happening, that is not, uh, that is not the approach to take. You know, ideally, we should be able to snap. We, I could snap my fingers and every dog and cat would have a home. If I could have my way, it would be like that, right? Yeah. But that's not reality. So we can 
we can think about how things should be and how we wish they would be and how frustrated we are about how they are. But, it, but we, you know, it, it's not how it's going to work. You have to meet people where they're at. You have to face a situation for the reality, you know, on how it is. And, and the reality is, is that if I walk into somebody's yard and, and want to talk to them about taking care of their dog, if I do that in a, you know, with my finger pointed, you know, I might get my finger shot off, right? I mean, you know, it's, you know, it, you're not going to, you're not going to get anywhere because people take it personally. I mean, the dog chaining thing is, is I think is one, because that, that is a classic illustration of like when, when, especially if people are like, this is why we rescue from the South. Look at what they do. Here's a picture of a dog on a chain. Um, and some of those are really sad cases and I'm not, and I'm not diminishing that at all. Mm-hmm. But when you go there, there are people behind that story. And that's the important, if you're trying to create affect change, you have to get to the story behind the picture. And, and maybe those people love that dog, or maybe that was daddy's dog. And maybe daddy has kept his dogs on the front yard on a chain. And cause that's what granddaddy did. It doesn't mean that they didn't love them, didn't care for them. They fed them, but that's what the family's done for generations. So if you come up there and tell them that they're horrible people, you're not only calling them bad, you're calling, you're, you're, you're talking bad about their dad and their granddad. I mean, you know, it's, that's not going to help you and that's not going to solve our problem. For as many differences as there may be across America, one thing was just about universally true this last year. It's that intake was up. Kennels and cages were full. Now, thankfully, adoptions were also up, but they weren't up enough to keep pace with the increased intake. So it makes sense that a good amount of the conversation this year was around finding positive outcomes, communicating to the public the needs, and how to best rally support to save lives. But how do you market and communicate around a crisis that doesn't stop for weeks or months? How do you effectively help your community understand the needs, and how can they be part of the solution? Tori Fugate is the Chief Communications Officer at KC Pet Project in Kansas City, Missouri. She and her team created a simple but powerful graphic that showed the kennel capacity at the organization. Using it, she was able to get the local media in the door to help tell the story about how full they were and engage more members of their community in the mission. Really, our biggest challenge right now is that we are taking in a record number of animals. Traditionally, before COVID, we were about uh, 10,000 animals a year, maybe 11,000. And then in 2021, we were at 14,000 pets. And then we are well on our way to taking in more than 15,000 this year. So the numbers are going in the wrong direction. Um, so we are really trying to get to the root of what is what is happening in our community and how that is impacting pets and people and looking at what we can do to sort of um, do a little bit more uh, work out in the community so we can keep more pets out with their families versus them having to come into the shelter in the first place. Well, and this is why we wanted to have you on, Tori, to talk about how to be more effective during times like this, times of crisis, communicating with your community mm-hmm. about what's happening. You know, for fear of sounding like a broken record, transparency so important. I think you all at KC Pet Project do such a great job of telling the story of what's happening and how people can help. Mm-hmm. And you do that in a number of ways, but I thought maybe one place to start would be with what you call the impact reports. These are incredibly comprehensive monthly reports. You put them out, they're up on the website, and they're really detailed about the entire operation. Can you talk about the reports and I guess what the impact has been, uh, if you will, from the impact reports? 
Absolutely. So each month, our CEO and President Teresa Johnson, um, who's been with Casey Pet Project since day one, when we took on the contract, um, she asks for all of our management level staff to um, write sort of a high level overview of what happened during the month. And we are responsible for tracking a lot of data and metrics and each department. We love data at KC Pet Project. So then we can be transparent about that data. And so she asks for these high level reports and each month she puts them together. And it's been something, a practice that we've done for years with our board of directors. And we send them to our city um, that we, you know, report to the city officials we report to and city council members and things like that. And then this year we were like, why aren't we publishing these to the public? Um, These are wonderful reports that just give everybody insight into all the work that happens here. And they're traditionally over 10 pages long. Like there's so much activity that happens here on a monthly basis um, it's just really staggering to to go through. And for me as a communicator and a marketer, it's just chock full of information and content and stats and fun stories and things like that, that I can share with our community in so many different ways. So we started putting those there on under the about tab on our website and we publish them on our Facebook page and, you know, um, still sending them to the city. The city actually publishes them on their website as well for Kansas City, Missouri. So They've been really great. I mean, it gives us so much insight into everything that happens here um, just on a monthly basis. And it's really staggering just the amount of work that happens here. Well, so let's talk about your marketing efforts right now during this really tough time, mm-hmm. specifically the shelter capacity graphic you created to show the public the kennel space or lack of kennel space, I suppose. Again, you can see the graphic uh, show notes area of your podcast player. We'll have a link. You can also go to bestfriends.org slash podcast episode 112. Uh, you will find the link in the resources section. So can you talk about it? Why you made it, why you made it this way, you know, laying out the operation like that. Again, in some ways it's sort of insider baseball, but I also think it illustrates the issue so well. Why did you create it and what has the response been? We, uh, for years when we were at the old shelter, I mean, we were full every single day. And so literally our shelter manager at the time, we would have a post up every single day that said, what's leaving? Like we're expecting 15 dogs in and we have one kennel open all day long. What can leave today? So we have that mindset all the time of what can leave today? Can we get in a foster? Does it have a microchip? Should we try to find the owner? Should we drive it around a neighborhood? Like doing all of these things all the time, just having that mindset. But then how do you communicate that urgency to the public without one sounding like you're crying wolf all the time? Um, you can't really go out with the same kind of message every single day and say, we're at capacity, we're at capacity. And for people out in the community, you can say that all day long and they may have no real insight as to what that means. What does it mean to be full to capacity? People ask me all the time, you know, what happens when you're when you have no more open kennels? And I'm like, we still have to take animals in. So we have to get creative and figure out how to get more animals out of the building. So I said to uh, Katie, who does all of our graphics and our our TikTok here, um, I said, what if we did this kennel? picture where we literally put a space up for every single kennel that we have. We have dog districts here is what we call them. Um, We put up a space for every single kennel that represents where a dog could live um, while they're here at uh, Casey Pet Project. And then we put like some sort of like paw print or like a a dot that represents that there's a dog in that kennel. And she's like, I got it. I got this. So she's so great. She just put it together. Um, She put like a key on the side to let people know kind of what each 
each uh, row was like, you know, if an animal should have both sides of the kennel, but we have two, two dogs um, in a kennel together with the door separator door in between them. So uh, she was really great about putting that together. And uh, we put that up on our Facebook page and the response was fantastic, not only from our community, but also animal welfare really embraced it. Um, and it was shared on local media stations and they were like, oh my gosh, look at how many paw prints there are in this photo. Like, and there's like four spaces that don't have paw prints. And so it was really great. The, the response was fantastic. I tried to share it everywhere just as like, Hey, if you're looking for inspiration of something else that you can do in your community to show, you know, an urgency, um, this is a great option for you. And I've seen some other places do like graphs and things like that, that to show, you know, we're at a hundred percent capacity. So we really have to keep thinking about being creative and how we can express that urgency and that we are truly in a crisis without it kind of being said over and over again in the same way. Tori, we've covered a lot of ground. We've been going for a while. So much helpful information. Again, examples of all of these things, link in your show notes area of your podcast player, or you can visit bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click on the link for episode 112, but just some parting words, you know, people out there really are struggling right now. And we're not even into the summer months. So I don't know if it's words of wisdom or just anything else that you can offer folks who are out there right now trying to save lives. Yeah, I think the biggest thing, this is this is hard. Uh, it's hard work what we do. And really, unless you work in it day to day, you don't understand the level of, you know, the level of hard work that happens here every single day. And, you know, the compassion fatigue that we talk about is very real. And over the past 10 years, you know, I've, I've seen a lot here and just going in every single day with that solutions, not excuses motto. It sounds a little silly, but that is really what drives us. And every single day, if there is a challenge, just instead of saying, oh my gosh, I'm tired. I just can't even do it. If there's a challenge, you say, how can I fix this? How, what can I do? Is there something that I can do to make this challenge easier for myself, for our staff, for our volunteers, for the community? What is it? And just constantly trying to be creative, be open, um, I'm literally just walking around the building on some days, just checking in with people. What do you need? Is there something going on? Like, what can I help with? Do we need supplies? Like, what is it? Um, and if you are the type of organization that, you know, maybe just closes things down and, you know, says, well, you know, th these people will figure it out. We're not going to get input from anybody else over here. Then that's not going to lead to success. It's going to lead to burnout. So just really getting, getting with your team, listening to that feedback, trying to, get creative. Um, my team will sit down occasionally and we just like say, okay, what, what ideas do you have? Like what, what else could we be doing? What are some fun things that we could try? And, um, usually we come up with some really, really good ideas that we can then try here. And if it works, we can share it with other communities. So just getting that feedback all the time and not giving up. I think that's the hardest thing. It's just like, okay, I could easily go to another job and, you know, maybe make the same amount of money and I could go home at five o'clock and not think about the 240 dogs that are here <laughs> in the building. Um, but this is important work. It's important to our communities. It's important people, you know, pets just are such an essential part of our lives and everybody deserves the love of a pet. So stay in it, keep going and, you know, work together as a team to, to face these obstacles. So we're going from one marketer to another. A few months later, I was in North Carolina attending the Best Friends National Conference, and I had the opportunity to sit down and interview one of the keynote speakers, Scott Stratton. 
Scott is the founder and president of Unmarketing. He's the author of six books. He's a prolific speaker who is from outside animal welfare, which is great. Not that it's better than someone from within the animal welfare movement, but I believe it is incredibly valuable to get perspectives from people who are not doing what we do every day. You get that fresh set of eyes. Check out the show notes for a link to this episode on our website. We'll also have more information about Scott and more information about all the episodes you're hearing this week. You kind of touched on it, but I do want to focus on what you said about uh, if you want to increase the bottom line, improve the relationship with the front line. Yeah. I... I'm very proud to work for Best Friends. We don't always get it right. But I will say that under Julie's leadership, she's put such a strong focus on the people. Yeah. You know, understanding that if we're good internally, we're going to destroy all this stuff over here. That's everything. Yeah. Uh, And and so things like raising pay, you know, for our for our frontline workers, our animal caregivers to eighteen, nineteen dollars an hour, you know, which is just pretty unheard of, yeah. you know, but also I think she does get out there. She'll go and scoop cat shit. It takes you know? both. Yeah. It takes both. And, though, but right? how many yeah. leaders don't do that? Most, but most, right. Why? But people right now, one of the things you hear right now is a lot like uh, people don't want to work or they don't want to do this. And, and I'm like, well, no, they just don't want to work for you. <laughs> there's a difference. Yeah. And I, I just, because there are two equations because there's a school people saying, well, pay isn't the issue. And then there's a school people that pay is the only issue. And I think it's both. I think that pay is an issue to a certain point. And, and, and look, if you, if you don't have enough to survive, then, then yeah, pay is a freaking issue, right? If you, if, I, if I'm below the poverty line working for you, what do you like? I think it was, it was a line. I think it was Chris Rock had the line, which was minimum wage. It's like, what we're trying to tell you is if legally we could pay you less, we would, right? Like, that's what the message is. And, and I'm being paid fairly for the job you do and then being not just appreciated, but involved, like, and that you have the leaders involved. And it's, it's almost like a, a, a team in sports. And we were talking before on this, you know, loving sports and going to places. It's like that coach where, if you've done it before and I, you have a, you have the, not only the resume, but also the ear of everybody. It's different to play for somebody who gets you. And it doesn't mean that somebody can't coach who's never played professionally, but if you don't understand the sport, if you've done it. So if I'm an animal rescue and an executive comes in from another industry or, or vertical somewhere else, and they're just trying to push their rules. When it happened where I, I used to work at Goodwill Toronto was when I graduated HR, that's where I started working at their head office. And what, killed it for me was when we brought in a VP of retail from the private sector and he just brought all the private sector stuff and we were doing it this way. And I'm like, dude, nobody's here for the money where nobody gets paid. Well, we're here because it gets good to jobs to futures. I still remember the tagline. That's why I worked there. That's why I took the job. And he came in, wanted to make it this private way of doing it. And within eight months I was at the door and a lot of other people were too. It's like nonprofit as in like here with animal rescue, nobody's in it for the money. We're in it for the for the heart, and when that heart is squeezed and crushed, you question yourself. I can't tell you how many people came up to me on the trade show floor here and said to me, "I was losing my faith in this, the industry doing this, and that I could give them a little, just a little nugget of something to help just get them over a little hump or something like that." Is the world to me because this is a thankless industry. Not not not. I don't mean like people. The people in the industry, you know, can be great for each other, but you're just dealing with so much terribleness when it comes to whether it's a, a municipal thing or the public or somebody who just could, you denied somebody an adoption and now they're out to get you like so many of these things happen and all you want to do is make the animals feel 
loved and cared for and that not being taken advantage of and everything else gets in the way and it's people. And we're responsible for that. I really don't think we can change things until we realize we are the problem, including me. Like I'm a recovering narcissist. Like I really wanted to start Narcissist Anonymous, but the the contradictions in the title. But you know what I mean? Like it's 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 the self-awareness realizing, oh, okay, I I'm not seen in the way I see myself. Right. And so how do people see? How do I affect people? What is and I realize you start realizing in the moment how we deal with people and affect them, and leaders exponentially affect people. And I said this, this is my favorite line because it means so much to me. You have no idea what it's like to work for you. And leaders need to think about that for a moment. Just pause for a moment and realize you don't know a lot of things. And I know a lot of people, including myself, we just overcompensate to pretend we know. Like, like look at me. I'm standing in front of a thousand or two people just telling them what I think. Like, what the? Cracking <laughs> jokes about, you know, ear hair or whatever. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> right? Just, I'm just getting up there and just like, what's, how's your father? You know, just do my thing. And everybody's like standing over. And they're like, that was the greatest thing I ever said. And I'm just like, I'm just making this up here. And it, but the reason is, is because it, it resonates. Yeah. Everything in life is, if you realize, if you boil everything down to marketing, business, relationships, it's about resonating. It's about, I feel you. And you feel me. And when you know that, right, it's just the world's just different. And that's what we have to focus on in, in animal rescue and in, in business and in relationships, resonating with each other, just doing that. Marketing campaigns at work resonate. Things that go viral, it's because they resonate, you know, in negative or positive, but they, it's, it's, it, it, somebody feels it. It's just not bland. It's not commercial it's resonation and that's everything in marketing branding sales relationships and leadership and last but certainly not least is the most recent episode to make this year's best of and that is episode 133 when our guest was Stephen martinez Stephen was hired as the new executive director of the york county spca in pennsylvania at the end of 2019 yeah, tricky timing to start a new job, but Stephen didn't just start a new job by coming in and doing the way it was done before. He was starting a process to transform how the organization operated in a big way. The goal was to achieve and sustain a 90% save rate. That's saving 90% of the animals coming in the door. If your organization is due for a transformation of any type, big or small, this is an episode you will want to hear in full. So many great bits of wisdom and so much to what they've been able to do there just again in the last three years in the middle of a pandemic at the York County SPCA, a couple of hours west of Philadelphia. In 2018, our average save rate was 53%. In 2018, our average save rate was 53%. So that meant that about half the animals that came in alive to our shelter did not have a live outcome. And that's heartbreaking to think about. So then when I got here, you know, I gathered my leadership team and we knew that we could do better. We knew we could do better than 53%. And so we crafted this strategy we called our best practices transformation. And what that means is that we stole ideas from all the leading experts, animal welfare experts throughout the country. So we stole ideas from best friends. We stole ideas from the Humane Society, from anybody who was the expert. We crafted a plan and we wove all those ideas together and we got to work. And so then in 2019, we increased our save rate to 64%. So we went from 53 to 64%. And then in 2020, we went from 64% to 79% save rate. In 2021, we went from 79% save rate to 85%. And uh, this year, and we're almost to the end of the year here, we're at a 95% save rate. So essentially, we increased our average save rate by 43 percentage points in three years, thanks to our 
hard work and the best practices transformation. So the title of your presentation is Pursuing Radical Transformation at Your Organization Against All Odds. I want to know what those odds were. You know, what did you have to face when you walked into that building on day one? Odd number one, culture change, right? Change is difficult. You hear it all the time. People have dedicated books and webinars and whatever to change. And that that is certainly the challenge we had today. So the way that we were, when we had a 53% save rate, that was, you know, the reason why we had that wasn't because the leadership before me wasn't good or didn't care or any of that. It's just because they were behaving like a regular animal shelter at that time, right? But then, you know, Maya Angelou quote, right, says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. And so we did that research, we stole all these great ideas, and then suddenly we knew how to do better. And you can't unknow that once you have that information. And so then we dedicated ourselves to pursuing change. And so I think it's just important to say that it's not like I have, I'm anything special, right? It's just that they were behaving like all other shelters, like many, I should say, many shelters were behaving at that time. And so it's nothing against them. And, and, and the challenge was, of course, that culture change. So we had this, like, my, my organization is almost 100 years old. So we had essentially 100 years of that same old typical dog pound empowerment and empowerment, you know, euthanize all the animals that can't, that can't be in a home kind of mentality. So to undo that in the community and among my team and the board of directors, it's, it's, it's challenging. Well, you broke down your transformation into five pillars. What were those pillars? So our best practices transformation was made up of five pillars of change. And those five pillars are the IT infrastructure overhaul, our community cat programs, adopters welcome, and that philosophy behind adopters welcome. And that's culture change right there. And then the other two are improving our internal communications and our external communications. And and so I would say it's all challenging to pursue. These are big bites of the apple here, but the community cat program in terms of like from a public relations perspective was certainly the most challenging to roll out. And we did it over three years. And I will say that the pandemic was kind of like that, that helped. So that helped us kind of, I wasn't planning on doing that much change over three years, but because of the pandemic, we were able to kind of sneak some stuff in from a, a politics, like plain politics viewpoint And we just blamed everything on the pandemic. (laughs) It's like, hey, we're going to do this now because the pandemic's happening. Whereas, you know, reality, we were going to do that that stuff anyways. We were just able to fast track a lot of our programs because of the pandemic. And we needed to do it. You know, we needed to operate very efficiently to get through those kinds of that kind of time. What do you think the biggest mistakes are that leaders make when they're setting out to undertake this kind of organizational transformation? That's a tough question, you know, because, you know, I think anybody is capable of pursuing this change. There is nothing special or magical about our best practices transformation. I'm not particularly smart. I'd never worked in animal welfare before. I think anybody can do this. But my presentation focused on some of the tips and advice that I would give to people pursuing radical change. So I'd recommend that they go and listen to that talk and then afterwards follow up with me and I'm happy to kind of elaborate on anything. I know that that's a super boring answer, but... Like there's just so many books written on how to be a good leader. There's so many talks and presentations that you can listen to, to on how to be a good leader. I don't, I don't feel that I'm any, any kind of authority on, on what it is to be a good leader, right? Like all I did was focus on the mission and saving as many animals as I could, trying to treat my employees as good as, as, you know, the best that I could, trying to pay a living wage and to care about them and to express how awesome they are. 
and then to explain to the board and to our key stakeholders and opinion leaders why what we do matters and why we need you to be a part. We hope that you'll be a part of the the solutions. You know, it's just all that that basic 101 stuff. Earlier, you mentioned you were taking all of this information from across the country. And as you've gone through this transformation, you're getting to a place where you can now contribute to that body of knowledge. How is that translated into your programming? Like, are you helping others in your area, region? You just said you finished your three-year strategic plan. Like, what's coming up for you, you know, this next phase for the York County SPCA? Mm, thank you. I like that question. Thank you for asking it. We've been thinking a lot about that. So we just wrapped up strategic planning. And the theme, you know, I told you, I love a good theme. So the theme is sustainability. Okay, so it's we're at 95% save rate. Can we sustain this for the next three years without running everybody into the ground? How do we sustain it? And so we focused a lot about sustainability in our three-year strategic plan. So I'd love to talk to you in three years to let you know like what we've learned about sustainability. But I will talk about one thing that we're pursuing next year that we hope will improve our sustainability. So earlier we talked about public relation challenges. And there is nothing that we can do or say There's no story that we can give. There's no data point that I can share with the community that'll ever make them not be mean to us, right? Like they are just mean. They're mean to my staff. They say bad things on social media, but they don't show up for a town hall meeting. You know, those people are always going to exist in our lives, unfortunately. A small percentage, very, very small percentage of the population, but those people really have an impact, an emotional impact on my team, on my staff. And so in terms of sustainability for the next three years, what we're going to do and invest in is two pieces. One is resiliency. So if you can't control people's behavior outside, what we can control as a leader, as the executive director, is my staff's resiliency to when they have something negative happen to them, to absorb that as any human being would, but then recover from it as quickly as possible so that you can go on and be happy and healthy and continue working at the York County SPCA. So we're going to invest in the sustainability piece and giving my staff the tools that they need to become more resilient. So rather than just like show appreciation and give food and like say nice things to your staff, we're going to try to dig a little deeper and build up our resiliency. And then the other piece is self-awareness. It's how do what we say, think, and do impact other people? So building up your own self-awareness. So we're going to focus on that as, as well. So that's kind of two things that we're going to try to do is just get better at us, at us being managers and at us managing our, our, the rest of the folks here. Thank you to all of our guests from this year for being so willing to share your expertise. And thank you to you for subscribing and sharing, listening to this podcast. It means a lot to us. You know, we passed 100,000 downloads of this podcast this year, which pretty mind-blowing statistic, I think, and wouldn't happen without you, of course, and certainly wouldn't happen without the awesome team I have the pleasure of working with. Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch, they help produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.